Last week when we were together, we looked at the launch of persecution in the church. And that persecution is launched in, in, in part because of the passion, because of the drive of, of a man by the name of Saul, who was later going to be called Paul. Today we're talking about Paul and what took place in his life. But before we jump into Scripture here, I would like for us to pause in, in just a moment of prayer. So would you pray with me? Our Father, I come to you and I ask that as we approach your word now, that you will make it absolutely clear what it says, what it means, but then also, Father, how it applies to our lives. What a joy it is to be able to sing about the greatness of our God. And now we're going to see that, Father, as we go to your word. And I pray that you, um, Lord, that you do a work in us today. Whatever work you need to do, but do a work. Father, we love you, but we only love you because you first loved us. We thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. It's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. So um, I told you that the launch of persecution started uh, with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul saw, uh, saw Christianity as a threat to his religion. And so he did everything that he could um, to, to stamp it out. Christianity had a form of Judaism that, um, that claimed to worship the same God, but, um, but Christians taught that the forgiveness of sin, the relationship with God, could only come through a man by the name of Jesus. And so Paul um, hated that because that was, according to traditional Judaism, it was a heresy. Paul wanted to do everything he could to stamp it out. Uh, John Piper was writing back uh, several, many years ago, actually, and, and here's one thing that he wrote in a sermon that he preached. He says, in the New York Times recently, there was a full-page ad for Columbia University. It advertised seven fields of study in which a person can get a Master of Arts in Liberal Studies, American Studies, Ancient Studies, East Asian Studies, Islamic Studies, Jewish Studies, Medieval Studies, and South Asian Studies. Richard John Newhaus spotted that ad and wrote an editorial about it, asking, where is Christian studies? Ancient, Islamic, Jewish, and so on and so forth, but no Christian studies. He ponders four possible reasons, and then he settles with this one. He says, nervousness is caused by the awareness that there are an awful lot of people who really believe in Christianity. The university is a cosmopolitan space where religious traditions can be subjected to critical examination, but are not to be taught as something that they might be, or as something that may be true. Even in religious studies departments, faculty members are, who are Hindus, Buddhists, and believers in mystical crystals can quite openly profess their faith. Muslims, and usually Jews, can too. Nobody raises a question about their proselytizing. Not so with Christians. The fear is that Christianity might be taken altogether too seriously. The absence of Christian studies in the Columbia program, it turns out, is not an insult to Christianity. Those of the other faiths, however, might have reason to be offended. But John Piper continues writing, he says, I think he's right. We live in a land where the rising prejudice and discrimination against Christianity is a backhanded tribute. It's an honor. Giving Christianity a fair shake and a fair open hearing, a serious focus of attention, makes secular people nervous, not only because there are, there are so many people who really believe Christianity is true, but also because they believe it is true for everybody. And that's the end of the, the quote there. The cool thing is that no matter how hard people may try, Christianity cannot, as a whole, be stamped out. 
It cannot be. You think about Jesus and what he had to say about his church. He said that he would sustain his church all the way until the day that he calls his church home. There came a point in the Apostle Paul's life in which he realized that. Earlier, Pastor uh, Dwayne read for us from Acts chapter 9 and then from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Acts chapter 9 is, is the account in the book of Acts where Paul gets saved, okay? 1 Timothy is Paul writing to Timothy saying, hey, this is in essence my testimony. This is who I was and this is who I am now. On that road to Damascus in which Paul was on a journey to go and persecute more Christians, just like Stephen that we talked about last week, Paul came, to the face, came face to face with the risen Lord. And when he came face to face with the risen Lord, there is no more denying the ex- exclusivity of the salvation that is offered through Jesus. It's offered only through Jesus, and that's what Paul realized there on that road to Damascus. That was the day in which Paul found life. He found eternal life. We've talked about in the past, he found Zoe. It's that eternal life that supersedes the temporary here on this earth. So Paul found life, but he also, that was the day that he died to himself. A part of Paul's self died. Earlier I had you turn to the book of Galatians. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 20 with me. And we're actually going to read this verse out loud together. I'm reading from the ESV. But let's read this out loud together. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, how many of you have heard that verse before? All right. Most of us in this room, we've heard that verse before. Paul has died to who he used to be. In another passage, he would, um, he would refer to this as, I am a new creation. Whoever is saved is a believer, is a new creation. The old has gone. The old sin nature has died. That is, at its core, the message of the gospel. All of mankind is born with a sin nature, and all of us uh, are included in that. It's ingrained into us to sin and to defy the holiness of our God, to defy the holiness of the one who created us. However, God has done something about that in the sending of his son, Jesus. Jesus came and he paid the price for our sin. And when he did, he created access, direct access for us to God. He gave us a chance at redemption for our sin, where before there there was no option for that. When a person has repented of their sin, they are a new creation in Christ Jesus. They've got a new identity that's found in Jesus alone. They can't be found anywhere else. No more are they viewed by God as a sinner. They are now seen by God through the lens of Jesus' righteousness. We have a doctrine um, that we teach. um, And a doctrine, by the way, is just a fancy word for a biblical teaching, okay? We have a doctrine that is called the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation is where something is taken and added to an account from an outside source. So let's say that you are a broke college student. All right, now I'm using this illustration because I've been there before, all right? But um, there was a time in which I was a broke college student. And one day, my parents, and I remember one time when I was dating Hillary, her parents did the same thing. They said, hey, we're going to put some money in your account, in your bank account, so you can go eat at Cracker Barrel and get a good meal rather than eating in the cafeteria one more time. It doesn't matter how good the cafeteria food is, you eat there so many times that after a while, you just don't want it anymore. Okay? So what happened in this case is there was an imputation, there was taking of funds from an outside source, 
and putting it on my account so I could eat Cracker Barrel, right? It's the same thing with the doctrine of imputation. What happens is, in the doctrine of imputation, is Christ's righteousness, something that doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. Christ's righteousness is added to our account. So what happens when we are saved is that God looks on us as righteous. He looks through the lens of Jesus' righteousness. And even though we're not perfect and even though we still sin, we are counted as righteous in God's eyes because of Jesus' righteousness that he has given to us. It's the same way here with this this doctrine of imputation. We see it take place in the life of Paul. We see it take place in the life of, of us. But what Paul is doing now is he is dedicating his life to communicating what takes place when Christ's righteousness comes on us. He dedicates his life to that. Before, he was passionate about doing everything that he could to squelch Christianity, to snuff it out, because he thought that it was a threat to his traditional religion, which, by the way, it was. But there came a a time in Paul's life in which he dedicates just as much of his passion and just as much, if not more, of his energy into convincing people that Christianity is legit. Now, as I'm thinking about Paul this week, I think about everything that that he had to say. He, he, He had these 13 books in the New Testament that he wrote, all of these phrases that come from the writings of Paul. And I was thinking about what is it that, what what is one phrase that encapsulates the life of Paul after conversion more than anything else? And I landed on this one, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 again. Here's what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I, live, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying this. Hey, it's not me. It's not me that you see living here. It's Christ living through me. Jesus gave it all, gave everything so that I could have this life. And the life that you see now is just Jesus living through me. This morning, I want for us to do everything that we can to wrap our minds around that phrase, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean for Paul? What does it mean for us today? That's what I want us to to focus on as we go through our time here this morning. And I I want to start out by going to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Pastor Dwayne already read this passage for us this morning, but we're going to go to 1 Timothy. We're going to see a little bit of the testimony that Paul has. We'll start reading in verse 12 here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We find Paul here thanking Jesus for what he has done and allowing him to serve. Look at this, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Paul's saying this, Jesus has has judged me faithful and he allows me to serve him even though I was a blasphemer. And even though I was a persecutor of his church. And even though I was an insolent opponent to him. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, then you have a similar testimony. Jesus has judged me faithful, and he allows me to serve him, even though I was a sinner, even though I was cast off from him, even though I did everything I could to oppose Jesus. He has 
proven that he is faithful, and I get to serve him now. For every single person from the time we are born, there is a common thread of rebellion in us. A common thread of rebellion. We are born sinners. By, defi- by its very definition, a sinner is someone who, um, who is in opposition to God, that defies the holiness of God. We have this common thread of rebellion that, that, that is in all of our lives. What that rebellion looks like is different for all of us because the rebellion looks differently for you than it did for me. For the Apostle Paul, it looked like this, that before he became a believer, he was a blasphemer of God, defying really who God is. He was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. He was a violent opponent. He says, I was a a violent opponent to Jesus. But folks, it is no different for us. Our rebellion is going to come in various forms, but at our core, we are all violent opposer, opponents, there we go, all violent opponents to Jesus. Something has got to take place to change our hearts and our minds. That's where I go back to Ephesians chapter, chapter 2. But you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience in whom we all once lived, all of us, carrying out the desires of the flesh. But then you get to verse 4, and what you read is those two, what I believe to be greatest words in all the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Ephesians says. There's got to come a point in every single person's life in which the rebellion is realized and repented of, that the but God has done something is understood. But then we move past that to the, oh, but God's rich in mercy and lavishes his grace upon us. That happened in Paul's life. That road to Damascus came that moment where He had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. That rebellious persecutor is going to end up becoming arguably what I firmly believe to be the most passionate missionary and proclaimer of the gospel that the world is ever going to see. We see this continue reading verse verse 13. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, middle of the verse. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what I was doing to God, but God showed me mercy and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Then he launches out in these words, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Folks, Paul has been saved by the great grace that has been poured out on him by Jesus. Paul's clear that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he considers himself the chief of sinners. He says, there were no sinners like me. I was the greatest of all sinners. But yet Jesus saved me. 
Jesus has displayed mercy to Paul, and the example of what's taking place in Paul's life can now be seen for others to come into a relationship with Jesus because they see that God is faithful to save Paul. And if God can save Paul, then he can save me. Just from the reading of this brief testimony from Paul, we can see that Paul has died to who he once was. And he is now alive in Christ. Here in the next few moments, I want to look at this idea of being crucified. And I'm not talking about our physical bodies being crucified. I'm talking about our old sin nature being killed, mortified, stamped out. Get rid of it. You get the idea? Get rid of that old sin nature. First, we're going to answer this question. Um, for Paul, what was it that was crucified? What was it that was crucified for Paul? If you look at uh, right there, the beginning of Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been is what has been crucified. How many of you have ever talked with a, um, a conversational narcissist? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. It's okay. Some of you may go, well, they're sitting right next to me. Conversational narcissist is the person who, who turns everything back to them. Doesn't matter what's being talked about, it comes back to that person. It could be that you um, are, are talking about the weather. And uh, then all of a sudden you, you, you move to, you know what, did you see the weather was great for that spaceship to take off. Then all of a sudden this, sudden this, this conversational narcissist turns it back to, you know what, I was supposed to be an astronaut one day. I had it all going for me, and then all of a sudden the system just messed me up. I was, I I was, I was going to do it. That, that may be a horrible example. You get the, you get the idea, though. Right? Somebody that, that turns it back, the conversation back into to them. No matter what you say, they are inevitably going to turn the conversation around to being all about them. Folks, much of life is caught up in the I. Much of life is caught up in the I, and it certainly was for Paul. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about who he was and, and his social status. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen for you. But he talks about his social status. He talks about his influence before he became a believer. He says this. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul loved him some Paul. Paul loved him some Paul. He was all about that social status and all about elevating himself before he became a believer. And if there's anyone that would have find it difficult to crucify the I in themselves, it would have been Paul. But Paul found something that was better than Paul was. Paul found something that was better than Paul was. Paul found that crucifying the I would result in a greater calling as a child of God and a minister of the gospel than his social status as a Pharisee of all Pharisees ever could. Before Paul crucified the I in himself, he had been the most religious person in the room. In fact, in his zeal for religion, he'd been willing, to, willing even to kill people. J.D. Greer wrote this one time. He said, believe it or not, Bill Mayer, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and the Apostle Paul agree on one thing, religion can turn you into a really bad person. Religion caters to the worst parts of us. Pride, self-centeredness, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, and bigotry. 
Religion done to distinguish you from others or set you apart is inherently selfish and leads you to insecurity, selfishness, and cruelty, which is the worst sin. The Apostle Paul, as a Pharisee, when he was ministering as a Pharisee, he would have people that would inevitably come to him, and they would tell him of the sin that they've been involved with, and and they would want maybe help for it. Paul, as a Pharisee, would have been filled with pride, looking down on other people. Look at me. That's not me. I can't believe you're involved in that sin. I can't believe that you would do that. But inevitably, what religion like that leads to is us looking on other people with a sense of, of, of selfishness, looking at, even, even with, with cruelty, like Paul ended up with. That's religion. But then we find the complete opposite in the gospel. The gospel teaches the opposite of religion. The gospel teaches that God offers salvation not to those who earn it as a reward, but to those who are unworthy and receive it as a gift. The the gospel teaches that God offers salvation not to those who earn it as a reward, but to those who are unworthy and receive it as a gift. The apostle Paul came to this point in his life in which he realized that the I had to be crucified, and he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, so this physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul has now realized that his pursuit of I needs to be killed and his identity had to be replaced by the only one who could really, truly fulfill him, Jesus. His religion, his pursuit to be a good person could not fill that void. Only Jesus, who loved him and gave himself for Paul, could fill that void in Paul's life. Now, let me ask you a question. Some of you may be here today, and you know without a doubt there is a void in your life. You've been doing everything that you can to fill that void. Maybe you've been filling it with with things in, in this life, like relationships. Maybe you've been filling it with the abuse of alcohol or drugs or anything. Maybe you've been trying to fill that void with religion. Look at me and how good I am. But you've still got the void, don't you? You've still got the void. Maybe you're sick and tired of it and you realize, you know what, after a while my religion and my trying to fill this void with all these other things has done nothing but really turned me into a bad person. It's led to insecurity. It's led to selfishness. Maybe even for Paul, like Paul, it's led to a level of, of cruelty. Yet all along, the gospel is whispering to you that salvation is available, not to those who earn it as a reward for good behavior, but to those who, like Paul, are unworthy and receive it as a gift. The I inside of all of us has to be crucified if we're going to live the way God intended it for us to live life. Then here's the next question. What was the, what was the result of this crucifixion that took place in Paul's life? What happened to Paul after he crucified the eye? When on that road to Damascus, Paul decides to, to die to himself and to live for Christ, there's no way that he was going to know all the ways that God is going to use him moving forward. Instantly, God's story is forever affected through the changing of Paul's story. Instantly, 
God's story is forever affected, get this, God's story is affected through the changing of Paul's story. Paul would go on to write 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. He would plant no less than, these are just the ones that we are clearly told about in God's word. He planted at least 14 churches himself, with those churches going on to then plant hundreds more. Paul planted the Ephesian church, which in turn planted so many churches that we find in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that every person in Asia heard the gospel. He personally invested in the lives of countless people. Immediately after his conversion, Paul started preaching the gospel. He even had people that wanted to kill him immediately because he started doing so. He preached to everyone from the poorest to the poor to the, to the most wealthy of kings, even kings who could have him killed at any time, he boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message was always the same, justification through faith in Christ alone. In Paul's 30 years of ministry after his conversion, he traveled to no less than 40 different cities to preach the gospel. Many of those cities he, he traveled to three and four times. The apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth when he, when he told them this. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul goes on to talk about a thorn in his flesh. And we don't know exactly what that was, but we do know that, that Paul asked God three times, God, please take this away. And God chose not to. In fact, in response, God very simply said, my grace is sufficient for you. He continues on, for my, per, my power is made perfect in weakness. To put it simply, the result of Paul's death to himself was nothing short of a miraculous working of God through Paul. What Paul came to find out, and honestly what we desperately need to learn, is that when we die to ourselves, we aren't losing anything. We're not losing anything at all. Rather, we are gaining Jesus. And there is nothing in this world that is more important than having and knowing Jesus. Nothing at all. I want to show you one last passage of Scripture before we close. And I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul had just finished listing off those achievements that I read for you earlier from this passage. But here's what he's got to say about those achievements. Philippians chapter 3, I'll start reading in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Salem family, listen to me. There is nothing in this world that can compare with having and knowing Jesus. Nothing at all. There is nothing in this world that can compare with having a not I, but Christ mindset. What might God's story look like? And how might God's story be affected, impacted? If I had a not I, but Christ mindset. How might God's story be affected if you had a not I, but Christ mindset? What might God want to do if that was our mindset, just like Paul? This morning, we're going to sing a new song to to close out our time together, and and I don't think it's going to be very hard for you to pick up. Here's the first verse to this song. The song is entitled, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Here's the first verse. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine, I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Folks, I don't know what kind of business you might need to do with God as a result of our time here in his word today and our time singing, worshiping together today. But as we get ready to sing this song, I want to encourage you to do business with God no matter what that is. Right there where where you're sitting, you can come up here and you can pray with me. I'll be right here on the front row. You can pray with someone else if you would like. But I want you to ask this question. How might God's story be affected if I lived with a not I, but Christ lifestyle?